With over 25 years as a stylist and TV presenter, Trini Woodall almost needs no introduction for our fashion and beauty fans listening in. She is now the founder and CEO of the global beauty brand Trini London, and I cannot wait to sit down with her today. Hi everyone and welcome to Founded Beauty, a podcast dedicated to beauty entrepreneurs who built some of the biggest brands today and where we learn exactly how they did it. We'll cover some of the most intimate stories, their path to success and how they overcame the obstacles along the way. I'm Akash Mehta, CEO and co-founder of Fable and Maine, a modern hair wellness brand inspired by ancient Indian beauty secrets. Building Fable in Maine has been an incredible journey so far, and I decided to launch this podcast as a founder keen to learn and connect with fellow beauty brand founders around the world. I believe in collaboration over competition, and so I'm using this platform as a way to hopefully help and inspire each other in what can be quite a tough and lonely journey. So if you are an entrepreneur or simply just curious how to build a brand, this podcast is perfect for you. So without further ado, it's a delight to see our guest for today, Trini Woodall. Renowned fashion and makeover expert, best-selling author, TV personality, mother, and founder and CEO of her own beauty brand, Trini is truly unstoppable. Since the beginning of her career with Susanna Constantine and What Not To Wear, our ideas of style, beauty, and aging have evolved while Trini's mission has remained steadfast, helping women look and feel confident in themselves. This led her to launch her beauty brand, Trini London, an entirely cream-based range of makeup for all ages and skin tones. I particularly love that she developed her own algorithm with her Match to Me technology, a skin profile that ensures customers or her Trini tribe to receive the best product matches. It speaks to her well-known hands-on approach and more importantly, her innate passion for making and taking women on a journey to make themselves feel more confident. So Trini, thank you so much for being with us today. I love the premise of your podcast because I think it is so important to be transparent and have collaboration over competition. I love what you said. Oh, thank you so much. Um, So Trini, I asked my guests the same question I'm going to ask you at the beginning, which is who in a nutshell is Trini? Somebody with relentless energy, um, with an undying passion to make people feel better about themselves, having, you know, things like that stem from at one stage having really insecurity about one's own self. So you know how debilitating that can be in one's confidence. And to inspire people to enjoy what I'm doing, to live in the moment as much as I can, to be the person that when you just kind of don't know which direction you should go, you might tune in and get some inspiration. I love that. And that's such important wisdom of words because a lot of people feel a bit lost and I think it's okay to be like, you know, every step you take, you figure it out along the journey yeah. as well. It's very important wisdom. Um, I do want to kind of go back a bit to the beginning. And I, and I know um, your your name, Trini, is stemming from a childhood nickname. Uh, so can you tell us about that? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. 
Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It stemmed from when I was very young. I was the youngest of six kids and... You know, we have dynamics, all of us in families. And I always felt I needed to kind of, you know, make my mark. But I went um, and I did something quite naughty when I was young. I cut off the plaits of a girl who was flirting with a boy when I was about six. I don't know. Fair what enough. Happened. Fair enough. I like a pair of scissors in my hand because I tend to always, you know, be cutting things. People always get scared on Instagram when I have scissors in my hand. What I'll do next. But um, but I did this and I was sent home and my dad was there with a man who um, was the writer for the Citrinians books. This is a really old thing. They did some rewrites and did some new films, but these were naughty schoolgirls. So then I was called Trini. My real name is Sarah Jane and it stuck. And then about six months after that, age six and a half, they actually sent me to boarding school. Um, I think, I don't know if I was not the easiest child, but, and in a way at boarding school, it was when I, first got the love of the drug of of making somebody over you know Mm. it's an amazing feeling to make somebody look at something differently or feel better in whatever industries we are that's in a way if we're d2c brands that's what we're doing we're trying to bring something into somebody's life that's going to make them feel better and i had all these you know i used to spend weekends at the school because i my parents lived abroad and there weren't many of us and so i they'd come into my room and we'd you know i'd tell them what you know, at six and a half, I wasn't using skincare. It's about probably sharing my stationary stash and sweets. But as I grew older, it, it turned into people coming around to my, you know, my digs in London when I first got my first job and I literally lived in a box and three girls sitting on the bed and, and helping them find an outfit that made them feel good about their body or going into the bathroom and finding a skincare or makeup routine for them that gave them a new view on themselves. And I, and I loved it. And for quite a few years, I tried to not do that as a job because I didn't think it could be a job. You know, I tried to do something in finance because my dad was in finance. You know, I, you know this path, I'm sure. Exactly. So many of us know this path of thinking what we are obliged to do versus what we find to be our passion that we should be doing. And, you know, I really resonate with that because I did engineering at university and it actually took me failing a year. I, I completed my degree yeah. to realize, okay, do what you're passionate about in life because you have your, it's your journey and no one else's yeah. but yours. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes looking back, it's good for me to have gone and done those decisions to be truly know even sure what I want to do. And I think, you know, you touched on that. And I do want to ask a bit about kind of how was that mindset shift? Because it's not easy to make that decision in the moment, right? Having yeah. a, you know, definitely, I have a fatherly figure who um, definitely inspired me. He did engineering, I did engineering. And I, he actually ended up being the beauty industry. So somehow, I guess. That yeah, that was, a, that was an easy way to focus on that. Yeah. But um, how was it like for you to like leave the finance set? Um, I kind of always knew, you know, this, they now call it imposter syndrome, but in, in like when I was doing it then, it was more that I just felt a fraud. You know, I Mm. thought I was doing something that I really didn't feel good at. I would take my tube journey, which is like about 15 stops to get to Tower Hill. And I would have like the Financial Times on the outside and some trashy newspaper on the inside, you know, and that was me. That was so me, like trying to give this appearance to the outside world that I was one thing, but inside I wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. I didn't think I could do it. And I ended up selling um, Anglo-American funds and commodities firm. And it was me and 69 men. I was the only woman. And I 
really didn't like it. And I really was, I was terrible at it. You know, I, I think I got one client. I was, you know, cold calling teaches mm. you a lot in life. It teaches you, I never, ever want to be doing this, this again. If you're, if you're my kind of person, you know, it's like that. It's like being an actress who hasn't got much talent. It's that endless rejection and the thick, how thick your skin has to be to get through that. So I had that going on. And I also was felt myself becoming very masculine to survive in that world. I would literally, you know, wear men's suits. I would kind of get men's shoes. I, you know, I just, you know, I didn't literally strap down my boobs because I didn't really have boobs, but I just did this stuff so that I would fit in and, you know, start swearing a lot more. And I get home and my parents would go, what, what happened to you? And I thought, God, I'm doing this to be financial and to be admired by my dad. And, you know, it was like such a pig's breakfast. So it took me, it, sometimes it takes things beyond your control to realize you don't want to do something. And for me, I lived also a very fast paced life and I knew I needed to actually take the accelerator off that life. And in, in the late eighties, it was a real fast paced life. And so I kind of took a year out and I was 26, but I, I felt at 26 that I had literally was like a 50 year old. I felt I'd lived so many lives. You know, I'd, I felt I'd tried so many things. I felt, I felt jaded, you know, mm. and I wanted to start afresh. And so when I came back to London, it's like I peeled off all these layers of this onion and it was so raw because I didn't, you know, all the facades and the bravado that you do as you're growing up. It's the most painful time a teen, teenager and in your 20s. I mean, never want to go back there. Um, but it's also a time of on one hand, you believe you can do anything. But on the other hand, you feel the most insecure about yourself. So they're always conflicting thoughts. And when I had this moment to take a year out and really kind of build myself again from the inside out, not from the outside in, I thought, what do I love? You know, I love making over my girlfriends. How can I make that a job? And so I'd started always people call me and I would they'd say, where can I buy this and where can I do that? And and so I thought, why don't I just make a column of it? And at the time, there wasn't much you know, in magazines, things were shot way in advance. A lot of stuff in high-end magazines was, you know, in, in the more affordable marketplace of kind of, you know, mass market brands. They weren't able to be in those magazines unless they did something a bit crazy that they made as a sample and it never got made. So so it's like there was this real dissatisfaction. There was never that instant gratification at that stage. It would be there's something in a magazine, you can't get it for three months or it's already been in the store. There wasn't that instantness. So I thought to do a column where I could tell you what I think is great and what I think is a waste of money and that it would be available there and then that feeling of, I love it. I want it. Can I have it? And, and that was a real key factor. So I kind of came up with this idea and I talked about it with this new friend of mine, Susanna. She said, can I steal the idea? Cause she already worked in newspapers. And I went, no, you cannot. We could do it together. And then we got a very lucky break. You know, life is full of grafting talent and lucky breaks. And this was the lucky break moment. So we had a guy called Eric Bailey and he worked at the Telegraph and he used to run motoring, but he was taking over a section called Weekend. And he said, okay, why don't we do something with cars and fashion? It was like literally the motor show with bunny girls, I think. And we said, no, 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 no. But what about this idea? And he went for it. And, you know, at the age of 27 and 29, we had a full page in a national newspaper, which we had to fill each week. And it was incredibly intimidating at the beginning, that responsibility. But that was the beginning of that change for me of doing from what I should do to the passion. Well, now I have to ask. So from, you know, this 
moment where you guys came together to what not to wear, how did that come to be? That was interesting because um, we had, you know, the, the the column was called, you know, what it was, it was what not to wear, I think. Exactly, already, yeah. Where, yeah. And so after a while, we got some TV people approach us. We'd done it about two or three years. And there was a B Sky B, which was starting, which turned into um, Sky. And they wanted some cheap programming. So they asked us to do the show. And it was, I think, called Girls Who Shop. And we shot it at our home. The budget was £500 a show. The audience was probably 315 people. But it was interesting. And we liked what it was. And then we did it one season. And then it didn't happen. And then I had my first for all into online. Because this was like, this was 98. And online, really, e-com hadn't properly developed. It was like emailing, it was, you know, information, research, etc. But it wasn't commerce. And cable and wireless were doing commerce and they had their commerce tool. It was the main commerce tool that you would use for transactions. But there were no players there. So I thought I loved this idea of a place that was global, open 24 hours a day, had a global potential audience, and that you could refine choice in some database system. I'd always been obsessed with databases. And you could offer things to people and then you could somehow monetize it. So I said to Susanna, I had a long weekend where I was like, I think I was doing a kind of fast. I don't know why I didn't need to, but I felt I was eating too much sugar or something. And I, and during the sound of fast, I had this idea and I read it all down. And um, Susanna said, well, I just don't know. She was less techie than me. But I said, let's go and talk to somebody. And I thought, who on earth do we talk to? And I had received a DVD which was from the Horse Whisperer. And on the back of it, it was sponsored by Cable and Wireless. And I kind of knew there was somehow a connection because then it led to a site online. And I thought, they know more than me. Let's go and see them. So I went to see this woman who was the head of marketing there. And I said, look, we want to do a site for women that, um, you know, at the moment it's quite masculine online. One site for women, it's a destination. It's going to be this. It's going to be like a portal where you can just find out stuff about clothing and makeup and skincare and cooking and everything. And we're going to get so much information on women and we're going to somehow sell that data. That's the idea. So she said, well, how much money do you need? And I remember I thought, oh, you know, I said half a million pounds. And I remember Susanna kicked me under the table like, are you insane? And um, so we left the meeting and, you know, we thought, oh, God, she's never going to understand it. And then two weeks later, I get an email and the woman says, I think you got the amount of money wrong. I think you need 675,000 pounds. <laughs> I was like, where? But anyway, she said, I said, fantastic and what do you want in response she said well when you do ecom we'll do the we'll be the platform i said great so that got me to building the business plan thinking who do i need what kind of coders do i need i was really i had knowledge of the ultimate platform i wanted for the women but the path to get there how i was going to code it build it everything i needed to find people so i started to build up a tiny team then we went out for finance yep. in literally you know what it is to raise money. In literally six weeks, we raised seven and a half million dollars. It was unbelievable then that sort of that innocent, desperate need of these new VCs appearing to be in on this incredible happening. And so we had two um, VCs invest. And then with that, I got a team together and I, I kind of felt I don't know enough about coding so I'll hire somebody really knowledgeable I don't know enough about this so I had somebody really knowledgeable and what I learned from that whole experience really dovetailed into how I decided to build up 
um, Trini London. And, and, it, and I think having a failure before you go and have something which then works is, yeah. is kind of makes that thing work better. Because I learned about don't immediately hire people on huge salaries because you can't afford it. You know, don't go, you know, trust your instincts. You're the CEO for a reason. Trust why you are. And they also invested in you, not the people you're about to hire. So trust what you're capable of and don't be sidelined by people who you think, well, they have more experience. So maybe I should listen because I'm young. And, you know, it's like, so I learned a lot of that. And then two years later, dot-com boom, flattened. And we went for a second run uh, fundraised and the traction wasn't there to do commerce online, which was where we were going to get our revenue from. The data was really amazing. We had a quarter of a million women's 200. We had 260 bits of data on each woman and we had about a quarter of a million women. So it was unbelievable data, but nowhere to use it. And so anyway, had to close it. Yeah. And that happened. So, so, I went off on a retreat. All these weird things happened to me. Go off on a retreat, really feeling the depths. Anyone who's had to close a business, it's a very, very difficult thing to do because yeah. your dream has been shattered. Yeah. And I go off to California, no, um, Arizona, and I go on this retreat for a week. And when I'm on this retreat, I go on this walk, uh, down this cacti walk, all right? And I just had that real feeling of, because I don't believe necessarily in a sort of, godly power but i believe in a certain level of spirituality yeah. and i just sort of said you know whatever is going to happen let me just let it come in just let it i don't know what it is because i really cannot see what it could be i don't know what it is and then i got back to england about a month after i got back the bbc rang and they had seen a pilot we'd done a year before and they said can we make this show based on your column and then we started what not to wear and then we had 10 years of tv and books and everything so so you know I think my career has gone in these sort of 10-year spikes, and yeah. that was one of them. There is this roller coaster journey that I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, CEOs, founders, they will have no matter what. And I think it's that resilience to a, know that there is something around the corner, there's timings, but that don't let the past dictate your future too much, but learn from it as well at the same what time. What was your right? biggest roller coaster moment? For me, I would say a couple of moments would be definitely like um, from my initial side of failing university and stuff and, you know, putting so much energy and effort into like trying to create this path of career that I thought would be what society or my, you know, my parents, when actually in reality, they didn't even want that for me. They just thought I wanted that, which I didn't know what I wanted. Um, and not really listening to what I'm, my gut is. And then definitely in building my brand now, Fable in Maine, the biggest journey, the roller coasters have been um, making so many mistakes, but I, I'm doing the thing that you said, which I'm okay with this mistakes is as the CEO, I'm actually hiring very step by step and I'm willing to learn. This is my one chance in building a brand that I can actually put on multiple hats and I want to take this opportunity to learn so much more because that's the biggest joy of this world and this life we live in is learning. Um, so I'm okay. I invite the failures because, um, I'm, but trust me, then there's a lot of roller coasters because I didn't have the expertise at the time to advise me what not to do and what to do. But it's part of it. And I, I'm sure you have the same, right? Is, is Yeah, you have to. Because also the world is changing around us. We can't, like, now look at today where it's all about social life selling and TikTok, and that's not the same as it was two, three years ago. And 
with the pandemic as well. So, um, but no, I would love now to talk about Trini London because the amount of times I've spoken about it in my office, every single person is obsessed from seeing the Phoenix stores to um, your pack. And honestly, you've been kind enough to send me all the products and I've been testing it. I've been using your packet, your travel kit. Uh, yeah. I've been traveling around with it, obsessed with all your products. So I want to know first, how was the initial sort of like ideation of it and how did the fundraising happen? The the ideation came about four years before it launched, which was I was at that stage, I stopped doing TV in the UK because I was no longer flavored of the month. And I went abroad and I worked with in I worked from India to Australia to Israel to Scandinavia to Germany to America to Poland. And in all those countries, all the people, all the women predominantly I worked with, I worked with some men as well, but they had the same um, we had the same sets of makeup artists from different companies who would do the makeup. So I'd have it in Poland. It would be Ignot in Israel. It was Mac. And I found that they were lovely makeup artists, but a lot of the young teams did the same thing on every single woman. And it was like, I'd then go in and say, look, she looks so different. She has a different skin, hair and eye. And she's this age and she's this age. And you're doing this yeah. base on all of them. And just really look at women as individuals. You've it's got copy to copy and paste that. and it shouldn't copy be and like paste. that. Yeah. So, and at the same time, for me, for convenience, because I, I love convenience, I was getting in my bathroom, I was always tweaking formulations and looking at how I could change something so that I could make it work with the skin. So people would say, you know, what is that your makeup you're putting on? And and where is that from? And, and it was that disappointing thing when you're developing something and it's not for sale yet, when you kind of say, well, I just made it, you know, and you, you just you want to say it's for sale in or buy it online or go to www, but you couldn't. And then I was getting to a stage where my old career was was waning. You know, I knew that there wasn't any life left in it. And I knew I wanted to start this business. And I knew I wanted to do portable personalized makeup. I knew that was the first thing because it was the first thing a woman saw when she had a makeover. So I knew I had to start with that. I also knew even then that I would do at least five verticals within this yeah. company. Okay. So it was never just going to be a makeup brand, but I knew that was the one that would be the most visual and impactful and get me in the door. Yeah. So I started um, talking to some friends and I had another idea as well that I was thinking about doing. And I remember being with my daughter's godfather and I was telling him about both of them and focusing on the one I sort of didn't really want to do, but I was doing because of an obligation. And he then said at the end to me, Trini, I have no idea why you think you should do the first one when your eyes lit up and you spoke with such passion when you talked about the makeup idea. Yeah. Why the f- aren't you doing that? Exactly. And it was like that. You it's like you, an aha moment that's right that's, there. And you're like, so like, and as long as you need somebody to just let you see what you cannot see right in front of you. So, exactly. so that gave me permission. And I did an SEIS and I raised 150,000 from him and from um, a friend who knew about skincare, who was a research, yep. uh, head of research at Mintel. And so it was really then like any business, even though, you know, I've led a varied life and I've met lots of people in my life. I knew nothing about manufacturing makeup. I knew nothing about, you know, about building a, a an algorithm of personalization, you know. So I had to really, every one of those steps, I had to, I would send out 30 emails to get one response. And, and this is where you've got to just be like, you've got to be the onion. You've got to not worry if you don't get the 29 responses because it just is a numbers game and you've got to keep at it. So whether you're fundraising or whether you're needing to find somebody who can help you to understand a balance sheet or somebody who can help you to understand how to manufacture in Italy and how can I get into a manufacturer where the minimums are 10,000 and convince them to do 2,000 minimums, you know, all these little things. 
Um, and how can I judge when I'm going back and forth on formulation to speak the language they understand? So when I'm tweaking a formulation that that I've worked on, they understand it's like you go to the hairdresser and say, I want more red in my hair. It's so subjective. So, you know, when you say to somebody, what are those words you use to talk about the texture and the viscosity of a product and that it should be more this and less this? So that was all really deep learning. And it was me and two interns. And then I got in my COO and that person came in and is with, is with me today. And they were the number cruncher. You know, I am not... I love numbers and I'll go into any meeting and know every single number, but I, it doesn't absorb me to work on a Excel spreadsheet all day long. And um, luckily my COO is very different from me. And I think when you have, you know, I've worked where I've been the sole person at the head of the table and I've worked where I've been in a full partnership. And I think that, you know, what I wanted to create Trinity London is a sense of we're a team This is me. I'm the founder and CEO. I have ultimate responsibility for everyone in the business. But I want to build up a team of people who feel passionate. I, you know, at the very beginning, I was looking at people who maybe didn't even have had a first job yet, or maybe they were just Mm -hmm. out of the first job. But there was something about them that showed that passion and the hardworkingness that you need in a startup and the flexibility and the hunger you know, the hunger for something. And, and when you, you recognize that when you hire people, you know, you see it in their eyes. And those people that I hired very early on have really grown within the business. And I love looking at seeing that they're the head of this or they've grown to that. And it was only after a few months and after we'd done our first proper raise that then, you know, I got in more senior people who could then also help those more junior people become more successful with more hands-on knowledge of a specific area, which was now not just one person, but becoming a department. So that growth, you know, that that first fundraise was difficult. I don't know, you know, uh, for everyone, it's a different experience, but convincing VCs and going around to CVCs who have got so many pitches in a day and Mm -hmm. they will, and it's, Uh, by instinct and I understand this but they will bring the last latest bit of information into the next meeting and then try and place it within your business and think hey I love what you're doing but you should split out the tech with the consumer and I love what you're doing but I think you should do it for millennials and I love what you're doing but I think you should do this and it's like constant like devil's advocate it's like yeah but there's not there's like how to like go at it you know yeah And and it's kind of I think what I learned in that process was I learned that at the end of the meeting I had to really do this little download and say, okay, from that, what was relevant that I need to take away and learn from? And what do I need to let go of at the door? Yes. That's, that's a real learning curve. So I think the thing I learned the most, and it took me the longest to learn, was that I was usually in a room that was predominantly full of men. And when you are, I found this in my relationships with men and with women, but when you're in a predominantly female environment, there is a tendency you want to tell a whole story, you want to paint the picture, you want you want people to literally visually see everything around them. And, and that's how information is absorbed simultaneously. When you're in a predominantly male environment, you want one little chunk, here it is, dissect it. Dissect it, okay, let's get the next chunk, here it is, dissect it. Because it just works differently, minds work differently. So... Um, I had to learn that because I wanted to just show them every facet of why 
the business was incredible. And they just kind of, it was just too much information. It was like, but what, you know. But they're not able to see it. And also they're not potentially, you know, the end customer. So for them, you have to no, really but, segment yeah. their, their, their yeah. opinion. They're not but, the but, end customer, yeah. but they, you know, if you have a good VC, they have they have an understanding of yeah. what will bring a business past, you know, because I think many people, when they start a business, they spend way too long refining the product and way mm. too little time figuring out how to sell it. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Exactly. And they'll tweak and tweak and perfect. And you've got to think quite quickly on how am I going to get people to buy this? A lot of it is down to, I guess, us as CEOs and founders because we ultimately push the button on those decisions. But utilizing all the learnings from whether it's VCs, uh, your stakeholders, whether it's your retailers, your team. But uh, it is a scary decision making because in the day there's so many different avenues we can take. But what I love specifically about what your journey was and what your advice was on this, and it's actually the replica of what I've done um, in two years now uh, building Fable and Maine is I started as that kind of overarching CEO founder looking over everything with a lot of really strong junior. When I say junior, I mean like, you know, more affordable talent as well at the beginning. Um, and also, you know, the brand is not big enough for, I guess, to attract some of the more senior talent. But then over time by... Um, testing i need to test a lot of people because it's my family i want to bring them in i need to make sure they're not just gonna come for a bit and leave because it's not what they want hiring the senior talent like i hired a coo and a gm row and now we're a team of 25 but honestly most of the business and most of the growth was done on a team of four or five and me at the helm of it um, but there is that switching turning point and i think for many people starting a brand today, I would really advise, um, you know, I see speak to so many founders who just think the first answer is, let me hire the all chiefs first, all officers first, and then we build around that. I don't know. That's, that's, I don't know. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think agree. also, you know, this D2C industry has evolved so much because when yeah. I first started fundraising, 
it was Blitzkrieg Casper mattresses. Doesn't matter much the cost of customer acquisition. Doesn't matter if you get them in the first basket or not. It mm-hmm. it doesn't matter about the churn. It matters about new customers. And why in the movie forward five years, retention, yep. lifetime value, loyalty. You know, yeah. don't even look at that. Do you get it? In, don't even discuss the first basket. It's like what is the lifetime value, and also. Mm-hmm. Where is your path to profitability? You know, this is yeah. a classic, very old-fashioned concept that a business should become profitable, okay? Yes. And somehow along the lines of the, the, the madness that has been the dot-com, it's like that doesn't matter because it will happen at some stage. What the fuck? It's no. not that. It's like why can't we in this modern world also build businesses that can get to a stage where they break even within a three- or four-year time frame and begin to show a profit? Because, you know, when it's like looking at painters during that fad of all these different movements from expressionism to fauvism to whatever it might have been so many loud noises look back the last century 20 amazing painters and it is that thing of cutting through all the noise mm. this one person said something to me who's something i really respect and admire and and it's really interesting to say this it's quite a personal thing to say so i want it to not be used in the wrong way but i had always admired leonard lauder all right and i met him once and um i then read his book and this is a real you know this is beauty starting 70 years ago his his mother going round and and making these things in her in a brooklyn apartment and going down to palm beach because that's where the rich people were and then giving out samples she was the first person to do that i mean unbelievable innovation within the beauty industry which at the time was charles of the ritz and helen rubenstein But when I then went back to see him um, about six months ago and he said this to me and it was so interesting. And a part of it, I thought it's because of the era you've lived in, but also it's about really seeing when you are younger than somebody, what are just wise words that are timeless wise words Mm. and what are wise words that feel stale? Okay. So he said to me, Trini, patience. Okay, because in in saying to a D to C founder, patient, it's like you don't understand my business. <laughs> but I went away, you know, I went away from that from that um, talk, and it really has resonated with me because you know we've all anyone who's D to C has come out of COVID. It's either been a very difficult time for people, challenging time for people, or an amazing time for people. And, you know, come June, you had the iOS release, you had a change in the Facebook um, algorithms, and you had a lot of changes in your ability to, you know, look at how Facebook worked in your in your funnel and what it, impact it was going to have in your funnel. And a lot of people, I think, went from, you know, direct response to brand build. And, and, and depending on the maturity of your business, you've got to go from how much here is in brand build and how much is in direct response. And a lot of people are changing their marketing budgets from, you know, we're going to do times two on the paid uh, Facebook DC, you know, direct response. And then a quarter of that on brand build, they've switched it because they've had to, because you've got to, you know, you've got to really in, in, in this very trying time, which a lot of brands are going to have, it's about, 
what are you that is more than just a product? And that's what's going to count. What story do you tell? And is that story a story that originated within you or it's very manufactured? Because if the story is very manufactured, it won't resonate with a consumer. They'll see through that. So, you know, I'm very grateful that we built up, especially during COVID, we have this Trini tribe on Facebook. We have, you know, normal Facebook following, social media following. But on on Facebook, we have this very very focused community and it grew it's grown tenfold it's 36 tribes across the world in 16 countries and they are our biggest champion and they're our biggest critique but that is a uh, something that was started totally not by us it was started by a woman in northwest england she started a, a, a fan page on facebook and it grew and mushroomed and mushroomed and then we see what we saw all these people with different bits of our site they'd taken or pictures of me and made these fan pages and we kind of brought them together and said look Let's let's kind of work together on this. And and that community are our real basis of what we stand for as a brand. And whenever I think of anything that I'm going to make a new product or anything that we want to talk about, I think of that community because that community, you know, we're definitely going to have people who are in their teens and people in their 70s. But that core community is about how are they feeling now as people, what's going through their mind you know, and being so closely connected to yeah. your customer through a community is so integral. It's a backbone. And, and I think if you don't have that um, direct connection, you can't really truly be agile and move with the times because you won't be listening in the moment of what your customer needs. And I think that's what you've seen in a lot of big conglomerates. My first job actually was at Estee Lauder Company. So when you said, when you said, well, Leonardo, it was, I, I honestly, it was so inspiring to be there. But unfortunately, I spent a little bit too long in corporate for, for me as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, where I was at Dior for a bit too, yeah, three, four years. And then I realized, oh, okay, this is not, this isn't, you know, the tribe, the community, that wasn't at the forefront of these because it was too big. Maybe it was a bit too big a giant. I don't want to say anything bad against it. You know, they're doing their path, but it wasn't the beauty brand that I wanted to either work in or build myself. And I think what I love about Trini London is you use these really resonating words with me, which is tribe, community, um, and you're putting them first. As much as we as founders and CEOs, you know, we have our own vision for sure. We want to be pioneering that, but we have to be that alongside our our, our family, our, you know, our, our customers, our the stakeholders. The vision can only be there exactly if the community is there. Is with you, exactly. It's with you, yeah. And, and, and I think what you said was also, all of this is great, but if you really don't have, whether it's a CFO or your eye on the P&L and you really think about commerciality and business success, all of it is secondary. Because I've seen amazing brands that, you know, and I'm starting to invest in a few brands. And sometimes I'm like looking and I'm like, what is happening? This is everything right, except that is wrong. Um, and it's sometimes, you know, poor decisions of growing too quick, uh, taking on retailers just for the sake of quick, uh, without the sell through. And I think that's where the patience is very important because um, you have to be at the right time that you and your company and your brand can grow. And timing is very important. So I, I love that you said, you know, you knew from the beginning you wanted to have five verticals, but, you know, there's still, I'm sure today there's still not the five verticals fully built, right? Because you're being patient, which I love. So can you tell us about just the first two verticals, um, about some of the products you have, some of the hero skews? So makeup's the first vertical, and the, what I wanted was to have portable makeup. So it's in stack like this. Yes. The colors are easy to apply with your finger. 
you go online and you put in your skin, hair and eye because everyone is unique in that combination of therefore are you sort of when I was building the algorithm, it was like, are you cool, 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 neutral, 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 warm, warm, warm or warmest, you know, and, and then you attach um, you know, coding to products. And then it gives you through this kind of populated algorithm um, and a lot of data science, it gives you a sense of a refinement of choice. And I believe that we are, we have a paradox of choice everywhere. So how can we first of all refine choice to the customer and offer them what will suit them? And how can we, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to buy color online because you first of all think, will it suit me, especially skin tone color. So I think what really helped our brand is that we did a few things. We decided from day one we would ship around the world because I have a, a fans around the world. And so when two days later, the Australian audience who had had, you know, other brands waiting five years to go over there said, I got my products and I ordered the foundation and they knew the color of my skin, you know, and I ordered online and I'd been in my department store and I came out and the color was wrong. That, that credibility is key so so you know from day one i knew i wanted to be fully inclusive and to me inclusiveness encounter is three things inclusiveness is not to be judged on the color of your skin on the um age you are or on the shape of you and the shape of you is something that for many years i've i've never looked at women by size i've looked at women by by what they are they you know are they you know curvy cello you know all these different things i did in my books but it was never like you're big and you're small that's just terrible so i i kind of knew that was a given and i knew that also i wanted to try and shift the idea of how heavy makeup should be for women because i kind of like the idea that you can you know this is the thing I, i believe in life and you can tell me what you think think of the men and women in your life okay um i think women put on a makeup at a time when that makeup gives them the most confidence in their own sexuality and they stick with it. All right. So they might've done that at 16 because they had acne. And then at 30, they have clear skin, but they're still doing it because it's what made them feel appealing. Men think, what was I wearing the time when I felt most sexually confident and they stick to it. (laughs) So, so in this, I knew that it was really important to, help women to review uh, how they're looking, you know, 10 years down the line, what I did 10 years ago, does it work now? And one of the big things is how much base do I wear? So, so 50% of our sales are the BFF family products. I sell a BFF, which is a, a sort of tinted serum, which has skincare benefits. And then we put the pigment in at the end um, every 20 seconds. And I sell this product miracle blur every 30 seconds. And these products are about looking after your skin first and then putting the level of coverage in after. So it's it's really looking like you have oily, blemished skin, it's rebalanced. You have skin that's very stressed and the cortisol is having a reaction on your skin, it's de-stress. You suffer from sun and you want the glow and you feel your skin looks tired and dull, it's Skin Perfecta with Best PF 30. So these, you know, grew and grew and, and, and we grew our customer base. And, um, and then I started developing skincare and skincare for me, I'd done a lot of, you know, I have a, an audience between a few channels of about 4 million. And I do these lives on a Wednesday talking about skincare for the last few years. And I've tried 
5,000 products. You know, I, I had acne from 13 to 30. When you've had acne, you've tried everything. A lot. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I knew what I felt. I knew where I felt the industry had got to. And I found, I found the flow of where the industry was really interesting because I felt when I started my love, long love of cosmetics and skincare, um, it was in the 80s. Okay. You weren't born yet, darling, but the 80s. And I went to Lord & Taylor in New York and I discovered Clinique. And I discovered there was something called a routine. And there was a cleanse, a tone and a moisturizer. And then I went on a journey for 10 years discovering brands that did that. And I would literally save a third of my salary on skincare. And then life changed. And instead of these big brands, there came some challenger brands. And the first challenger brands were these cosmeceutical brands. And suddenly they began to talk about ingredients. They were expensive. They were inaccessible. It was usually from a derm. You got them or maybe then through a high-end um, pharmacy. Um, and then you had the mastigeness of that concept, which was the ordinary and all these other brands, singularly, you know, calling out very, very complex ingredients and saying to you, you just need this, which yeah. was interesting, but profoundly confusing for the consumer because now they thought, okay, I realized there was just a routine. Now I'm being told there's all these other things we should be looking at. Now I'm being given these names of all these other things. And now what do I use in what order when and what's going to do for my skin? Yeah. So let's demystify. That was my first priority. Let's look at really what we should be doing with every skin, which is really reducing inflammation in the skin because inflammation in the skin leads to spots, rosacea, psoriasis, um, all different conditions. And if we can bring down inflammation in the skin, but we can also help to treat and heal things that have happened to your skin through, through environmental and sun damage, that's a range. And then we want to tell you in which order you should use them. So when I was looking at which order I should use them, you should use them. I, you know, most brands, they launch a range. You know, when I launched in London, I launched a range, right? But I thought skincare is different here because I want to really get people to go back to it. I'm just taking off my bracelet because it's making a noise. I want people to go back to basics. And there's so many people who, you know, we can, as founders of a, of a sector, we can assume a certain basic knowledge from a consumer. And we usually overassume. All right. We usually overassume. Yeah. And I had, you know, many people I know who I think are quite sophisticated who have no idea if they should do hyaluronic acid before vitamin C. Do they need to clean their face in the morning? And why should they clean their skin twice? And doesn't a toner take off the last bit of makeup? Okay, all these things. So I then also had had these lies I did on Facebook of a quarter million people each week. And I had from that an average of 2,000 comments. So over four years, you know, I had 300,000, I think actually a million comments. It was some huge yeah. amount. But we had yeah. so much research there of where women fell skin and men yeah. too in this instance. Because now as we get, you know, we have about 10% of people of males buy our makeup. But I think skincare, it's more, and I'm loving that because it, it's, it's, it's gender neutral. But, you know, as we are predominantly started as a for women brand, you know, we're evolving that audience, which I love. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to launch everything at once. Because what I want to do is I want to spend one month and all I want to do is talk about cleaning your skin. Yeah. Let's go down to basics. So we did that. And then the next month, all I want to do is talk to you about what does exfoliation mean and what is an acid and why shouldn't it be scary and why should there definitely never just be one? And then the next month it was 
retinoid. Oh, my God. Retinoid, retinal palmitate, gran active retinoid, retinal, retinol, retinoate, tretinoin. You know, hell, what do I use and why? So let's let's demystify that one. And let's yeah. use the best converting only ones retinal. OK, which which took me forever to formulate. But that I want is effective, fabulous without downtime. And now today, when we're doing this, this chat with you, we've just launched our vitamin C. And, you know, so um, I love that we've done it this way. And sometimes you do things purposefully and sometimes you do things accidentally. And this is a mixture of both because there was going to be one product that was going to be late. And that made me then think, actually, let's not overwhelm the consumer. Let's tell the story slowly. And, you know, that patience angle where this is a journey of building Trini London. There's not like an exit plan tomorrow. I hope not. I mean, it's a, it's a long term playing and therefore you don't have to rush things. And I think that slow growth, but mindful growth, thinking about um, it's hard because we have an industry that's not necessarily on the same wavelength. And therefore the customer is getting uh, all the types of messages. And now with this added TikTok virality where someone might say something not completely correct, but a million people have seen it in 10 seconds. And you're like, wait, is this the right way to do it? It's tough. But that's why you have to care about your tribe and who you're speaking to first and make sure at least they're getting it. That's so true, because I think, you know, there's been a lot of instances where, I mean, especially around things like acids on TikTok, there was such a kind of, let's go mad. And and a lot of kids' skin was damaged. A lot of microbiomes were broken. And I looked at this whole faddishness. And I spoke actually to one brand who'd benefited from this virality of TikTok. But I just thought, I'd rather educate fully before Mm. somebody buys without understanding, because it might be slower. It might be telling my investors have patience. You know, we've had phenomenal growth every year, but still, you really have a responsibility. Yes. You know, if you're manufacturing something to sell to a consumer, you have a responsibility that they use it the best way possible and the right person uses it for the right product. And otherwise you haven't told your story properly. It's so true. Well, one question I do have to like, because I have this a little bit with some of our products. Uh, When you have certain products that could have multi-purpose use, but sometimes having a clearer message is easier, right? Like, for example, we have a hair oil and people, people say, oh, I've been using it on my eyebrows and using it on my post-wash. And we're like, okay, but it's a pre-wash. And we're trying to like stick to that message, right? Um, How do you find sometimes where you're seeing your community is telling you, actually, Trini, I've, I've used your product in this way. Uh, then I'll get them do? on my feed and I'll let yeah. them tell their story. Interesting. I love yeah. that. Because, you know, it's like you need to kind of present, this is what we've made and this is why we made it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then if people find it has another benefit and they love it, as long as it's not technically not allowed on that location for, you know, a reason yes, yes. of medical stuff, exactly. then it's about really saying, okay, that's amazing. Let's find out more about this. Why mm. is it that you love that? You know, I, I'm trying to think with, um, with Miracle Blur, mm. I, I developed it as a filler inner of lines. And then people with really oily skin were putting it on before their makeup. And I don't have a really oily skin because I, you know, when I'm doing formulations, I test first on myself. I, for me, it was a really personal product because it would literally fill in lines. And I think, wow, it's like I've got a filter on my face without filtering, which yeah. I... I'm against. So um, I thought this is interesting. So then I was like, you know, I've just been told by it's also to give ownership. I think what's really not to do is to say, you can also do this, but say, you know what? One of our community was saying this and we then inside, you know, did some testing and actually what a great idea. 
And thank you for broadening its use, you know. But that original message, you probably, when you launched, you told the message and reinforced it and reinforced it again. But, you know, the launch of a, of, of a product has a core message, you know. So what is the launch of my vitamin C? The launch of my vitamin C is that it will help even out skin tone. It will dull uh, age spots. It will give you that glow. Um, that's the primary message. The yeah. secondary message is that there is for our core audience of 35 onwards, they've already had sun damage. They were the people in the 90s who didn't use enough SPF generally. Lots yeah. did, but many didn't. And they have the melanocytes between the epidermis and dermis, and they're going to poke through and they're going to have more age spots when they have hormonal changes. So I want to tell you this story that that's happened to your skin, so you need vitamin C. Mm. And then there's the third message, which is a message which is the hardest message to tell because it's a message of prevention. Not many people buy products for prevention. You know, my daughter want would burn her now. finger on the stove and then think yeah. I won't touch the stove again. But the prevention message is one where if you actually use vitamin C in your teens and 20s before you put on SPF and you do it every single day, you won't have the damage of your mother with mm. the sun because vitamin C takes the hit of that damage. You know, SPF pushes back all the UVA and UVB rays, but some get through and and and. And vitamin C is like, it would take the hit. And um, so how do I tell that message? All right. That's a harder message to tell. And is it a message somebody else should tell or I tell? And then it might be that somebody goes, you know, so with my BFF, for example, uh, and this is like an extravagance, but somebody said, you know, I've always been embarrassed by my hands. And I, you know, I take Trini, I take your BFF, which turns the color of skin. And I put it on and it reminds me to put on SPF, but I put it on my hands before I'm mm. at a, because uh, she had, she wasn't like a, you know, she used her hands a lot when she talked, she was very conscious of them. And, and I put on my hands one day and I thought, oh my God, my hands look fabulous. So then I did it a bit on my hands and now people are like, can you make a body BFF, <laughs> you know, because it just gives this kind of glow and love to your hand You've probably got beautiful skin because you're in in your 20s and you've got great hand skin. But, you know, that was just like, okay, great. Love that. Um, Yeah, so so I I think it's important. And I think products evolve. You know, I used your hair product probably contains castor oil at some place. It does. Yes. And the castor oil is making the eyebrows grow. I used during lockdown, I used castor oil on my eyebrows and on my on my eyelashes and they they grew like crazy. Yeah. yeah, so true. No, and I think that's very important that it is like a birth of a product, and you don't stop that birth process or the cycle. No, when it's launched, you launch. It's actually begun then, and then you yeah. listen. You see how you can improve it. There's definitely be feedback, you know, and even how you retarget it. Maybe you thought it would be for this type, but it's actually not. Yeah. One thing with Fable and Maine, which was really interesting, is we had this big debate at the beginning of you know these are Indian ingredients. I knew these ingredients and Ayurvedic ingredients don't discriminate. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It just hasn't left India as much. So initially when launching with Sephora, we were in the kitchen you know, for about a year or six months. We were like, is this, they, were, they were saying, this is a South Asian brand, right? For South Asian people. And we were like, no, no, no. This is for everyone, for all yeah. hair types. Yeah. They were like, but do you want to say for all hair types? Like, is that a bit too broad? And actually, thank God we stuck to our guns and we formulated it the way I wanted it to be because we actually were told a few months later that we're the most diverse hair care range in terms of customer base. We're the most equal split. And that's when you don't realize it until you've launched it. And now we're even more value, you know, I guess we can say... You have an even greater value because you have a broader audience base. And that's that's where your gut is like, 
Don't put us in a pocket. Yeah. It's so important. Mm. Um, And I think that's where sometimes it's nicer to, you know, build a lot of your D2C in your own presence first, because your stakeholders are not going to be that much influencing your decisions, which sometimes, unfortunately, they do. Uh, We've had retailers who tell us, don't say Ayurveda, it's not going to resonate with the customers. And there are things where I actually listen to it, but I'm like, no, but I need to be the voice of change, you know? So it's hard. It's definitely a a tricky one. So Trini, we're going to now do a quick around a fire round question. So first thing that comes to your mind, first question, what's another beauty brand that you're currently loving? Gucci Westerman. Love it. Uh, we've also had her on the podcast. Great, great guest. Um, what is a guilty pleasure of yours? Chocolate. What are you currently watching or reading? I'm reading The Unfinished Palazzo, which is about the life of the palazzo that Peggy Guggenheim had. And before that, Amazing. two other very pat, sort of strong women. And yeah. um, I'm currently watching nothing because I think I've watched everything during COVID and I really need some inspiration. I'm the same. It's okay. We need the time at detox from TV. It's good. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> What's your favorite social media platform right now? Instagram. Favorite quote or mantra? You never know what's behind the closed door. And last question is, if you weren't a beauty entrepreneur, what would you be doing right now? I'd be doing something that makes women feel better about themselves. Love it. Well, Trini, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Where can everyone find both yourself and Trini London online? Trini London is at trinilondon.com and I'm at Trini Woodall on all social put all the links and the bios everyone can go click and Trini it's been an absolute honour and I'll see you very soon you too thanks so much for having me on I hope you enjoyed this episode of Founded Beauty as much as I had making it and if you did please share it with a friend who you think will love it too Founded Beauty is available on all podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts Spotify Amazon Music Podcasts the Acast app and many more and I'm also very proud to be part of the ACAST Creator Network. So be sure to follow the podcast so you can get episodes as soon as they drop. We really appreciate every single follow, listen, share and review. It truly goes such a long way and helps us reach new listeners. So as a little thank you, I will be hosting a giveaway each week on my Instagram channel at meta underscore a, where you can win some amazing Fable Main goodies. All you have to do is follow me, check out my stories and all will be revealed. Stay tuned for the next episode of Founded Beauty and don't forget to subscribe and follow so you can be notified when it drops. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.